Welcome to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and I am thrilled to be here. My guest today is a coach, a mom, mentor, an athlete, a role model, a motivator of many young women, and so much more. On her Ready, Set, Row website, she says this, my goal at RSR is to change your life. I want you to do the work. I want you to feel more confident. I want you to take action in the face of fear. Step forward when your knees are shaking. You will still... Holly, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thank you so much for making time and thanks for joining me in the pod ship this morning. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Mm, it's my pleasure. You and I have been trying to connect for, or at least anticipating connecting for a conversation for quite some time. And there's been a lot going on over this past year. And so again, I'm super grateful that you're willing to make some time and sit and have a chat. Yeah, I'm really excited to finally do this. Sorry, apologies for being the bopper that I am and running around a bit crazy sometimes, but I'm at home for the foreseeable future. Life is like that, right? So uh, first and foremost, you know, kids, you said six years old and eight years old, right? Yes, I have an eight-year-old daughter, Taylor, and a six-year-old son, Little Roger. Little Roger. My husband's name is Roger and my dad's name is Roger. So we have many Rogers. (laughs) <laughs> and I have a tailor, as you well know. That's I know. <laughs> I've said for years that when people have kids that are, you know, kind of under six or seven or eight years old, that, look, we're not going to hear a lot from them because they're very, very busy. And then as the kids get a little bit older, then, you know, we kind of are able to climb out from under the rock that is, you know, just been total immersion or so immersed in family. So I completely get it. One of the things that you that you have done is... Recently, you went on a road trip, like a big road trip with little Roger and Taylor and yourself at the helm, right? Yes. So the original idea was to go for two weeks, which I sort of got my husband's approval, sort of, for me to go do this. (laughs) Um, And then as I started to plot out the map, it it slowly extended and it wound up being eight weeks. We rented a 32-foot RV and a close friend of ours down the street actually decided to join us. So that was a huge blessing because my husband did have to return for work a little bit. And so our friend John was able to accompany us. He drove my minivan and pulled a little scamp behind him. So we were like a little caravan of two. Um, And we were gone from September, I think we left September 11th. And we got back close to November 11th. And we drove from North Carolina up through basically sort of beelining a bit. Um, We went to West Virginia to do some whitewater rafting. That was my son's top of the list request for the trip. I let them pick a few things they wanted to try to do. And then we went to South Dakota, sort of across up over to Montana to visit one of my husband's college buddies who lives up there. And then down into Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, down through some of Colorado, over to Utah, down to the Grand Canyon, and basically back. And it was amazing. Such a good thing to do. Within my family, we talked about it for years, like, because this country is so vast and so spectacular and so varied, you know, where would you go? And that that's a pretty good loop right there. I mean, I've actually had a couple of people being like, I need your RV lesson learned. 
Um, so I'm actually thinking about recording just an hour long thing on YouTube and making that public and be like, you can just listen to everything that I would do again or not do again if I had to do it again. But I'm a pretty big proponent of, or I love travel and I'm a big proponent of using travel in other countries and cultures and people as an educational tool. And so our children have traveled quite a bit. We're very fortunate to be able to do that. And in the year before the virus came, I was really busy, both with my company and some other companies that I was helping out, just so busy that I felt a real strong, frankly, mommy guilt and tug in my heart about how I was structuring my time, right? Time being your most, in my opinion, valuable resource for anyone. And so it was really a huge silver lining for me to be able to do that you know, logistically, financially, all of the things. So grateful to be able to do that. And it came at a time where literally the year before I had been really struggling with how on the earth am I going to be able to do all this and feeling like I just wasn't spending enough time with them and sort of missing those years. So they're so hard, right? The expression is the day is long and the years are short. So I was really feeling that. And (laughs) As my husband has pointed out, if I decide I'm going to do something like that, it's happening. And so, you know, when our friend John was like, well, maybe I'll go if this happens. And I remember Roger writing, like, you do realize that if Holly says she's going to do that, like, this is, this is happening. This is going to go. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, yeah, that's actually quite accurate. Um, And so it was an opportunity for me to spend some really quality time with the kids. And my husband was able to come for almost all of it. He did have to go home for maybe two weeks in the middle of eight weeks. So he left for the middle two weeks or so. And of course, bless his heart, he drove home because I was like, you're not flying and you're definitely not flying back with the virus. So he drove from Denver to North Carolina and then he drove back to the Grand Canyon with a rental car. And so he was able to make the trip home with us. And time will tell, right, all of the lessons the children learned. Some are immediately clear to me on the trip. But, you know, it was a great opportunity for me to learn, to think, to observe. It was a time, if you look at the data and the maps on the virus, we were traveling through Missouri and Iowa and and Nebraska and South Dakota before those states hit their peak numbers. And so... You know, it was really interesting to see who was wearing masks, who was exercising, you know, the CDC guidelines to prevent the spread of the virus, who was looking at me like I was an alien when I walked into this to get my takeout order because I had a mask on. And that part was actually really hard of like, oh, I'm not sure what's happening here, but it's coming here. (laughs) It may not feel like it's coming here, but it is definitely coming here. And we took extreme precautions, you know, like we never went in any bathrooms or showers. Like, by the way, you can't really put your arms up and out in an RV shower. So (laughs) that's one of the things you have to get used to, you know, most people that RV, they're like, oh, you just shower in the bathhouse. Well, not during a global pandemic, you don't. So we all got used to all of those adjustments. You know, the kids went to the playgrounds at the RV park only if there were no other kids you know, with masks on, like the whole thing. So our kids are now little expert social distancers and mask wearers. Um, And um, it was really, it was really interesting, like still sort of unpacking it all, frankly. What an interesting opportunity to take a look at this vast country 
you know, not all of it, but a good, a good cross section of it during a really, really interesting time in history and get a sense for, you know, what's going on out in the world, out, out in our country. What a gift to do that. And, and to, as you said, like, okay, where are the masks being worn? What's the vibe here? What are, what are people thinking? Because we don't all think the same. And that's clear. You know, here you and I are recording on January 21st, the day after the inauguration, things have shifted, but that doesn't mean that everything across the country right. has changed. That's right. And I can confirm that I'm positive that it hasn't. <laughs> and that was really valuable for me, right? Like everyone I hope has the opportunity to at least start thinking about, and I'm no expert on what we do here, right? But it seems to me there's no negative externality with associating yourself with spending some time to try to think and see, and, and I hate the expression, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Cause I'm like, I can't do that if I'm just not that person at all. Like there's just no way. And to assume that I could is false and misleading, but it's yeah, a mistake. I yeah. tried my best to listen. I also tend to wear many of my expressions on my face. So I am working on the skill of trying not to have like a repulsive reaction when someone says something that I find offensive. Um, at the same time, also trying to stand my ground and demonstrate to my kids that it's a balance, right? It's standing up for what you believe in and protecting other people. But also the challenge, I believe a big challenge right now is people are, their emotions are so strong and so deep that people will not listen to each other. Like it's just the default is there is no listening. And so I just tried to shut my mouth more. And try to have an expressionless face to try so that I could have the opportunity to listen more as opposed to someone gathering my position immediately and then try to my best to understand. And the, an example I've given people when they ask, like, well, what are you talking about? It was actually in Utah. We met a very nice man who was renting us an ATV. He happened to have a gun on the side of his belt, which my children, you know, are immediately like bug eye because that's not something you see in North Carolina very often, at least not where we live. And I, you know, reassured him like, it's fine. Like, you know, we're renting an ATV here. And he was maskless. We were masked um, going into his office to, you know, check out the ATV. He made a comment about how so many people, this is prior to Utah's radically increasing numbers. He made a comment to us about, how so many people were coming to Utah. And in fact, I haven't recently looked, but the last time I looked, I wasn't able to actually see the visitation numbers for some of the national parks like Grand Canyon, because anecdotally, people were saying that actually the travel was way higher than they'd ever seen because of the virus, which is interesting, right? Another silver lining though, more people getting out in nature and appreciating our parks and all those things. But anyway, he had said, lots of people are coming to Utah. And what he said after it was, because we still have a bill of rights here. And I tried not to uh, react but it's just, I tried to understand, right? Like what is fueling that type of comment or feeling? And the best I could do to come up with for now is fear, right? There is so <laughs> much fear and it's so pervasive and so strong, whether it's fear of being controlled or losing or the perception that you're losing your liberties or, you know, whatever. I don't want to put words in other people's mouths because I didn't actually want to say, excuse me, sir, what are you afraid of? I didn't think that was going to go over very well. <laughs> from what I could tell from the RV trip, that is the main driver, which is I need to still think about some more. But if all of us could just think about that for a second, 
it might change how we respond. Even when I've had really strong or emotionally charged interactions with people where we're not seeing eye to eye on like, what is the best safe behavior right now? It all comes down to fear, right? My fear of the virus, of spreading the virus and people I know getting sick and dying. And probably if someone does not believe that they need to do those behaviors, their fear of losing their ability to make their own decisions or control. And so that is really interesting. And then it's helpful for me to think about that instead of the person. If the driver is fear, then I can feel a little less charged about it. Right. We can all relate to that, right? Like we can all relate to being afraid of fear, having fears, whatever they might be. That's relatable. And I think that's really, I love the conversation and I love the, where we are in this from, you know, you and I, because this is the kind of thing that is necessary, I think, where we plumb the depths, we explore, you know, the fact that you were out there across the country, you bump into different things, coming to terms with not, you know, not wearing it all on your sleeve or on your face and giving it all away, what you might be thinking. But then, as you said, you know, you've been back for months now and you're still unpacking understanding that maybe it, it really all does so much of it does boil down to fear and fears of different. We all, you know, all the fears are different, but we can appreciate what fear feels like and then empathize, listen with more of an intent to understand because we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> like we, as a, as a nation, as a species, as a people, we, you know, we got a lot, we've got a lot of work to do. I don't think it's up to the people who got sworn in yesterday. I think part of it, you know, they can do their part, but we need to do our part too. Everybody. Absolutely. And having your kids out there, that'll be six and eight is pretty young, you know, but that'll be indelible over their lifetimes, I'm sure, I would think. For a lot of reasons. <laughs> you know, one, if you get to go whitewater rafting in West Virginia and then spending time with mom and spend, being on the road and, you know, that's that stuff is awesome. Good on you for going and doing it. Yeah. It was a bit of walk the talk, Holly, um, Coach Holly here, right? Because um, it was really scary. And most of my female friends were, what are you doing? Like, what? You're going by yourself? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going by myself. And they were like, well, you're driving that by yourself. And I was like, yes, yes, driving by myself <laughs> for the most part. My husband was there, for, you know, half of it or whatever. But you do those things, right? Like, that was that was sort of my challenge to provide that opportunity for my kids and our family and myself. Yeah, it's scary and you do it. You manage it. And I try to tell all the athletes, comparison is the thief of all joy. I did not say that. I actually have no idea who said that, but I love that. I use that a lot, especially when I'm working out in a group setting still, even at this age. I have modified my own version, which is fear is the thief of opportunity. And had I sort of succumb to the like, ooh, yeah, that's a little scary, 32 feet, you know, and the big vehicle, you have no idea how to fix it, but if that thing breaks down and you're in the middle of a global pandemic. So <laughs> had I just said that's too scary, then we would never have gotten to be able to do that. So walk the talk here. 
Yeah, I was going to say walk the talk. And, you know, so for my listeners who don't really know who Holly is, I said some things in the intro that uh, Ready, Set, Row is your is your business, is your, and on your website, it says very clearly, and I made a note before we got on, the framework that you work with is seek challenge, expect discomfort, and embrace the work. You certainly sought out the challenge and expected there might be some discomfort, and, and then you go and you hit the road and, and spend the time and do the work, right? Yep, absolutely. So, you know, it's not just an athletic framework. It's a framework to help deal with challenges, roadblocks, um, not insecurities, but uncertainties that you may have, just where you're like, I think I should do this, but I have no idea. You know, there's some there's some footnotes on that. Like, you cannot view the challenge as insurmountable, right? I'm not talking about a 14-year-old that wants to start rowing, and then I say, okay, try to make the national team. Like, that that, that we're not going there right now, right? <laughs> You're finding a challenge that is within striking distance for you, but a stretch. And then don't assume that it's going to be, you know, rainbows and puppy dogs the whole time. And remember that like the most critical piece is the process and work that's going to be required to tackle that challenge, whether that's physical work, mental work, emotional work, whatever, all of the above. That's helpful for me to to remember that remember that as well. And, and if you don't seek out something that's a challenge for you, then you're sort of empty at the time of quote unquote achievement. So that seems to help center them in remembering that this is supposed to be hard. It wouldn't be valuable. Close relationship with a bunch of those women. And so that was really special for me. Like I knew them, even one I had rode with in high school. So I'd known her for years. And of course she went on to stroke the 1B. So she was kind of a total badass, but um, <laughs> That helped me a lot in formulating sort of the mind coaching that I do. And let me first just say, I only consider myself like a professor of the practice, right? I have no PhD. I have no formal training in like sports psychology. I have no, <laughs> I, my resume is just what I know as an athlete and the 20 plus years I've been doing this. So a lot of people will be like, well, how'd you get into this? And I think it all just started being a very self-aware athlete. and a really small athlete in a sport that tends to favor height and strength. And I'm incredibly short at five, six and a half. But I, we think probably the, if not the, one of the shortest Harvard Radcliffe varsity heavyweight eight athletes for three years ever. Um, it's just, you know, the taller you are, the more leverage you have. And so I was able to coach them that year. We did extremely well. I sort of was able to practice some of the things that I had been using myself on other people. And it came very innately to me. It was very organic about how to do that. And it came directly from my heart. Not like I'd made an outline of like, this is, this happens to this. It was not academic. It was improv, really, most of it. So that was really interesting and in starting to see that I actually thought I had a talent for, I didn't know what actually, whether it was just phrasing things or speaking to them in a way or just relating to them. A lot of it, I think, was that I was able to relate to them right away and, and build that trust quickly. I coached a high school in South Florida for a year very successfully. And then I took some time off with the well-known guilt that most Harvard grads have of, really, this is what you're going to do after you encountered all that much debt and went to Harvard University. So I did a bunch of other things. And in 2015, interestingly, I owe this family a great deal. I had just had our second child, Roger, and I was coming out of our newborn photo shoots 
right? We'd just gone to like a studio to take these newborn photo shoots. I think Raj is maybe like, I don't know, six weeks old. And I saw on the sticker of the photographer's car, the club that is local to my area, the rowing club, which North Carolina, though growing, does not have a ton of rowing, not quite like the East Northeast coast. Right. And so I popped back in her office and I said, do you have an athlete or a child that rows locally? And she said, um, yeah, she rows for the Triangle Rowing Club, which is the local junior club here. And I said, huh. And then I told her my story. And somehow we got in a conversation where we wound up trading <laughs> the newborn photos, like all of the negatives, for me to coach her daughter, you know, three or four times on the ERC. She said she really wants to row in college. She's just started. She was a former swimmer. Um, she needs some guidance because she was, a, I think at the time, she was a junior. Maybe she was a sophomore. So anyway, you know, she wanted to, to make it happen right then pretty quickly. And so we did that. And, you know, I didn't have anything formally written, but I was a fitness instructor at the Y and I, you know, I was still in the space of fitness and coaching. And so she came to the Y a few times and from there and the reception that I got and saw again, like how impactful this was, along with the very clear communication from my amazing husband saying, it is very obvious that you really like this and you're very good at it. Why aren't you doing this? Along with one of my closest high school friends who is actually an investment banker, interestingly, but was like, this is your thing. Like, why aren't you doing this? Why are you working, you know, in these other areas? Um, so they both sort of pressured me to take the leap into figuring out how to do this, you know, more professionally. And so I ran a summer indoor rowing program. I'd have to look back. It might have been 10 weeks or eight weeks where they were coming into my CrossFit gym at the time, you know, learning some strength, mobility, flexibility. And I was coaching them the ERG three or four days a week and had some really great success with that. And shortly after that thought, hmm, what does this look like for me? I'd thought about coaching college again. I'd even thought about coaching juniors again. But as you probably know, especially in our sport like rowing, the more you work with those athletes, the faster they get. And when I had been coaching full-time, I was working a lot on getting them faster and they were getting faster, but I didn't have any kids for a family then. And so I had a bit of paralysis of what I knew was to go try to be a college coach or a high school coach. And to do that with children, it's really hard. So I called a bunch of my female coach mentors who were amazing at the time the Duke rowing coach position opened. Um, and I thought, oh, should I be applying for that? And I did. And I was not who they were looking for. <laughs> I was not a good fit for to be a head D1 coach like that at all. Um, but I was like, you know, you throw your hat in the ring and at least you get interview practice. So I talked to some people at Duke. I also talked to a lot of my female coach mentors and there aren't a ton, right? So there's not very many female coaches. And when I told them I have a six month old and a two year old, they were like, this is not probably what you want to do. Or this is what it looked like for me when I did it, because most of those coaches I talked to had had small children. So I diverted, right? I pivoted from that of if I want to do this, but I, I can't be a full-time college or high school coach, then what does that look like? And I saw that there were summer camps. There was a summer camp at the time, not too far from where I was actually, who had been around for 10 years or so. And I thought, 
maybe I just do that where I really dive in and I really mentor those kids and I spend a ton of time with them and I hardly see my own birth children in those four weeks, but then it's over and I don't do it anymore. Not year round, like a college coach. College coaching is so intense year round, right? Because you're just recruiting if you're not actively coaching. So that's how it was born. So 2016 was the first on the water junior women's racing camp that I ran. My alma mater, St. Andrew's School in Delaware, was amazing and took me on, even though I'd never done it. We had 32 girls, I think, come on. And I owe them a tremendous amount since they had no idea who I was. That's why I was qualified for doing this. But, you know, it was great. I went to I went to regattas on foot and schools on foot and pounded the pavement and like pitched myself, which I hate doing that sort of thing. Like most people, right? You're selling yourself to people who have no idea that they're even in a position where someone's going to try to sell them something. (laughs) Right. We're way, we're way better off at selling other people's stuff than we are selling ourselves. Oh yeah. But rowing actually has, um, and you've probably seen this, Jeff, they have um, tailgates, basically. They have tents they pitch along the river because the regattas are so long and boring in between races. And so they have barbecues out and the parents are having a great time. So I would walk into those tents to a bunch of parents who did not, frankly, want to talk to me usually, or like, why is this random woman in here? And try to strike up a conversation. So man, I got a lot of practice (laughs) with that. And I don't have to do that anymore. Thank goodness. Because it's really hard to do that. As you can imagine, Um, I, in the first two or three years, probably went to, I don't know, 25 regattas and 20 schools. So yeah, doing the work, you got to get it out there. So I would be scared. Frankly, I wasn't thinking about it that way, but that is you're scared of the judgment of rejection, the whole thing. Right. And I can remember calling like Chris, the Samaras who you've had on here and, and other people who are really great resources for me too to manage those fears. And I can remember she gave me a pep talk one time. I can remember even my aunt giving me a pep talk, like close people saying, do you believe you could change the life of these children? And I would say, yes, I will change their lives. And they were like, then who are you not to walk in there and tell them that you have an opportunity to change their life? And I'm like, you're right. And that would last for like three tenths. And then I'd be like, I need someone to tell me that again. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I need a, I need a boost because I just got three no's. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you are changing lives. That's for sure. I could sit here and say, well, that all sounds great. But as you well know, and and, uh, most of my listeners know that we have two daughters, um, Taylor and Savannah, and Taylor is a crew athlete. And she came to the the sport in high school. I think she might have been a sophomore, but she might even have been a sophomore when I got her, I think. Yeah. And that was pretty quick because she had only started that fall. And, you know, by chance, one of our, one of Fiona's friends you know, said, Hey, our, our daughter's doing some rowing and there's a learn to row thing. And Taylor went and checked it out and was into it. And then that person said, Hey, you know, coach Holly's doing a thing over the holidays. And I think that's when she came to your first two day, two and a half day, 2k erg clinic in Raleigh. And I mean, literally her switch was flipped on and she was turned on at that point. And that's not been turned off yet. She's got some things that she's interested in accomplishing as I think you probably know. So awesome. So awesome. So you're making you're making a difference. You've made a monster difference in one of my daughter's lives. Aww. For sure. I know that. So it's such a privilege. It's such an honor. It's impactful for me 
And every time I do a program, even if I'm like not sure how it's going to go or I don't know any of the athletes or it's just um, every time I'm like, I do love doing it. I love taking any athlete. They don't even have to be a rower when I get them, but someone who is seeking the challenge, right? It's harder. People are like, do you learn to row camps? And I do here and there, but my passion is to take someone who is looking to light the internal fire and just need some guidance to do that. Or someone who has the internal fire and will light it just isn't aware that they have one. I'll take both of those, right? But rowing is an amazing recreational sport. And I want to take nothing away from that because it's great exercise. You get out in nature. It's like a meditation, all of the things. I'm just not passionate about coaching people who are there to do that. There are other people that do that much better than I do. And so what I really love is to see, as you said, like the, the, that the switch is flipped, like that they either have, have direction now for desire and change and self-improvement and self-investment, or um, they have direction about potential, right? Like building internal capacities, they can increase their performance level. So it's really, really cool. And this is critical for boys and girls. It's just that, in my opinion, young women have fewer opportunities to do that. Sport is an amazing opportunity for them to do that, especially one like rowing. Um, and there's a handful of other, you know, endurance power sports that I believe do the same thing. But women just culturally, they're not encouraged to do that. And it's so subtle, but so pervasive that to take the young women and do it is just, you know, a passion of mine. So it's really amazing. A couple of things that I'd love to pick up on there. One, you know, seeking the challenge, it's cloaked in the context of crew. I see it with Taylor. It becomes a, a driver in life, like seeking the challenge and, and in the face of fear, right? So Taylor is fearless. Well, not maybe not fearless, but she acknowledges it and then she gets after it. And, you know, if that means going to ask for a job or going to learn a new skill or, or whatever it might be, then I see that, right? Like she steps up and steps in and she's had some of that anyway before she started rowing. But then, ah, then through being in your programs and being in your presence and being in Krista Samaras bravery training and, you know, being at Ithaca College and being with the coach there and the team. And boy, I hope there's a season coming up this spring because she's been keeping her nose down on the grindstone for almost a year with, you know, nothing out in front, not, not knowing what might be out in front. So I hope it, I hope it goes for them. Um, I hope there's some water time and some team work. I know at Ithaca, they were scheduled to start training uh, on the 18th and I haven't talked to Taylor in the past couple of days. So I hope that actually has happened. Yeah, just you auto-corrected there, Jeff, but just so that everyone remembers, we don't want to use the word fearless, right? Because that is that they should feel that way. And that's what girls think. And we, and Krista started this and I sort of roll off what she's doing with my athletes to remind them that like, you will always feel fear. You're just managing it. And so Krista will use the phrase of to brave more in the face of fear. Brave more. Yes. And so rowing is so amazing because the two main things there's so many things happening, right? But the two big ones that immediately translate to their life skills or their path outside of rowing, because rowing is one of those sports <laughs> where you're probably not going to do it after college. Like there's such a small, slim portion of the rowing community that will continue it at a high level, right? Recreationally great, but like people that are going on to the national team, the Olympics or something. 
But the value of it, there's so many. The two big ones that I like to point out to parents is the first is the awareness, recognition, acceptance, and um, sort of pleasure in the pursuit of excellence, right? Rowing, no one is ever going to row perfectly, ever. And so if they understand that and are still willing to put that amount of work for that small amount of glory, frankly, <laughs> and acknowledgement, right, to give up the whole self for the benefit of the whole, which is exactly what the sport does, in that much discomfort, all in pursuit of something that you know you're never going to hit, you're just trying to get as close to it as possible, that is really valuable, right? It shifts the focus from being perfect to trusting the process. Academically, this is not what happens. <laughs> By and large, right? People are trying to get the perfect grade. And even I struggled with this, right? Like I had a really, I thought Harvard was a really hard place to go for many reasons, not just academically. Part of it is the pursuit of perfection by your peers there, which I was like, had an incredible imposter syndrome getting there, but also I was not doing perfect on anything, right? And so to be surrounded by this engine of perfection is really hard in my opinion. And so that is really valuable for someone to submit to the process and discomfort for the good of the whole with no benefit to the self, except to know that you're pursuing something because you see the value in the pursuit and like the end result is what happens is a result of the process is amazing, right? And so rarely do they have the opportunity to do that. In one instance, I do tell my parents, I have to actually see if St. Andrews still does this, but St. Andrews flipped an academic switch for me that is running sort of tangentially to this concept, which was, it's a very excellent school and it has a very excellent writing and sort of English exposure to students younger, usually like even sophomores in the program are expected and taught how to write quite well. And I was a new junior, which is very rare. There was only three or four of us. And I got in there and I didn't write very well. <laughs> and I could remember a really great professor, I guess teacher, we didn't call him professors then, but a teacher, he's now um, at Deerfield, actually he's the head of the school at Deerfield. He's one of the best teachers I've ever had. His name's John Austin. He and the other teachers in the English department would give us a product grade on our papers and a process grade. And if they hadn't done that, I'm not sure this switch would have been flipped because in academia, you're only usually graded with a number grade that's reflecting whether you got it right or wrong. They don't care how hard you worked on it, right? Especially in writing. This is really tricky to me, I think, in writing. Math and science, like the answers usually are correct or incorrect. At the time, we did not have laptops. So when you were revising an essay or a paper, you were doing it by hand, right? You'd print it out in the computer lab and then you'd hand edit it. And then you'd have to make adjustments in the computer lab later during study hall. And so I would pass in Jeff, like, he was like, there is no way that you did this much work, like three quarters of an inch worth of paper to show that I was really trying to do this. I just hadn't gotten it yet. Yet is the critical piece at the end of the sentence, right? And so I would get like 99 in the process and like 70 on the product. <laughs> <laughs> but recognizing the work, yeah. right? 
if you can't recognize the work, why would anyone do it? Right? It just, it's so hard when someone works that hard. And that's what I love about rowing and the pursuit of excellence is you may not, you're never going to get a perfect grade on the product, but I want to see you get a perfect grade on the process. And then you, and then you would average them. Your full grade was an average of the two. So it wasn't just like a pat on the back, like, good job, Holly. Like it actually changed your results. And I am really grateful that they did that. I actually want to see if they still do that. Cause I think it's an amazing thing to do in, you know, in an English class where it's not so binary of like right or wrong, like a math class is. And the second piece is the opportunity through the sport to build their internal capacity is how I phrase it to them of how do they strengthen all of the things sort of in the mind to allow them to reach these new performance levels. Once they're aware that there's the opportunity to do that and that then they, they recognize and understand that like these are character strengths that can be trained just like their body is being trained. Um, you know, that's really valuable to them. So they may not have the best 2K or 6K or time, but once I explain, like, you're actually training your mental endurance to focus during that. I forget about the time you pulled on the ERGs, the ERGs in a Norway machine for viewers who don't know what that thing is. If their time isn't great, but they still were able to sit on the ERG for 40 minutes, like, that could be a win for someone. And so there's your process grade again. And then you get into like training, you know, a kill switch where they flip it on and they just race and really go after it and do all those things that are a little more advanced. But those two opportunities through the sport are, you know, in my opinion, why I do it for sure. People ask me why I do it. And I try to point out to the athletes who may get so caught up in particularly the 2K time, since that's the one college coaches want to know, um, that's just the grade at the top of the paper what's the process grade that's the piece that's going to tell you whether you're actually improving yourself holistically right not just as an athlete thank you for listening to all things big and small atbs the podcast my name is keith gorman good friend of jeff formricks jeff's doing some wonderful things i encourage you to become a patron go to atbs.com and click on the patron link now back to the program. There are a couple of things I'd love to talk about. So there's this, well, all the things that you just talked about within the sport. And then you talked about your size somewhere mm -hmm. on your website. And mm -hmm. then... There's an about Coach Holly that I talk about, like my, where Twitch was flipped for me. Yeah. You know, where the coach came over and said, you know, I want you in the varsity eight. You know, you're like, yeah, and you've just said you had this, you know, imposter syndrome of just being there in the first place. You went on to do all the things that you that you accomplished in your athletic career as a smaller female rower, right? What I was looking for is here are the things you need to do if you're a smaller, if you're on the smaller size. And and I can't figure out where that is exactly, but somewhere in your So the rowing obviously caters. If you look at Olympians, for the most part, they're going to be tall, lean, and tough and coachable. They got to be coachable, right? Because they got to be able to take direction and there is absolutely technique involved. What gets challenging is when you have, you're missing one of those, right? So I've had tall, lean, not tough athletes. I've had short, lean, very tough athletes, right? You could, you can mix and match all of those. The tough one is my favorite one, right? Because that's under their control. 
and I mean, to some extent, the lean pieces too, right? But in high school, that's not as critical. Like they just have to be tough and they got to be strong and they got to be able to work, be able to work hard. And so what I remind the high school athletes, for the most part, they are at programs where if they are taller and stronger and more athletic, they're going to go fast. That individual is going to be ranked well on their high school team. If they're not, they're going to have to find other ways to increase their speed, right? And so the way they do that is mental toughness without even recognizing it. For the most part, if you get any walk-on or recruit onto a collegiate rowing team who's under 5'9", that kid's probably going to be real tough mentally because they've had to be to get there. And so I had an advantage of already... (laughs) Every short person's like, what are you saying? I did have an advantage of being forced to figure it out. In some of the sports psych books I've read, um, they call this the workaround effect, right? It happens when someone's injured and then they figure out how to do their thing. And so some other piece of the puzzle actually gets strengthened because they are missing another piece. Um, And so I encourage people that are experiencing an injury to figure out what are the things you still control and you need to build that one. This is the time to build it, not wallow in the fact that this other piece is missing or temporarily out of commission. So I went to St. Andrews for two years. I was, their stern pair and I, a close friend of mine, were the shortest by far in that boat, but we went very fast. So it wasn't as clear to me then what a sort of quote unquote handicap I had for our sport in being short, like that I was so much, I had such a disadvantage because we all went fast and I didn't really think about myself separate from the crew, right? We were all one crew. When I got to Harvard, yeah, I was small. <laughs> and so then I was like, right. And I even remember training. We went to British Henley after my senior year. We were, we got second in all the things. We should have won, in my opinion. We got second in all the things in the states that, that those mid-Atlantic schools go to. And so he took us to British Henley. We won that. The last first and last time St. Andrews has won that. And at the party, or like the, not party, but the meet and greet with the other teams, Actually, a soon-to-be Radcliffe teammate of mine was rowing for another school. And, you know, someone found out that we were both going to Radcliffe. And someone said, oh, Sally Sue, I won't tell you her name, but Sally Sue, here's Holly. She's also going to Radcliffe. And Sally Sue said to me, which I made her aware that she said this for all four years of college. She said, oh, are you going to cox for me? Which is the little person that steers the boat. That fired my whole crew up. They were so mad she said that. (laughs) (laughs) We wound up beating them the next day. So I'm sure she was immediate removal foot from that. But um, it was clear. I knew I was short. But as a freshman at the time, there were still freshman crews. I still wish sort of college rowing still had that piece to let freshmen bond and, and have that crazy year of all novice rowing. But they've changed with the growing NCAA sport. So it doesn't exist anymore. But I rode on the freshman crew. We went quite fast. But I had a hard time. I had a hard time adjusting there and, and all of that. And I don't think I, I knew I was that fast. It's funny that I can say that because my freshman year, I went to the National Lightweight ID Camp. In high school, our coach had us doing the Junior National um, ERG test every month. It's still sort of the same now, but it's a little more robust. Back then, you basically sent in a monthly time and they ranked you um, about you know getting a grade and then seeing how you ranked nationally. Of course, I'm a 78 birthday, and so I aged out of the junior national team my senior year in high school, which I think is a total bummer since I was on the normal like public school track. But their birthdays aged me out. And so as a senior in high school, I was submitting mine to the national lightweight squad, which is 
you know, unheard of for like an 18 year old to be submitting that time. But we were just doing it to keep us accountable. We weren't actually expecting to do anything. And my freshman year in high school or college, I said, oh, well, I'll just keep doing this. Like I've been doing it before. And I remember all the coaches sort of raising an eyebrow being like, you really want to do this? And I was like, yeah, why not? So they were like, okay. So I submitted time and then they had a national ID camp at Princeton. The captain of the lightweight squad, Radcliffe has a lightweight, a quite good lightweight rowing team as well. She was going to go and her coach was going to drive her down there. So my freshman coach was like, oh, well, you'll just go with them. So I was like, okay. I had so oblivious, Jess. Like I brought like a bagel with me. I was going to stay with my high school friend in her dorm. Like, what was I thinking? I was going to go take like a 6K earth test and stand in front of like the Olympic coaches. And I brought like a bagel and orange and just sit <laughs> on the floor. But anyway, I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> so I went and I had a horrible sleep. There was like a party down the hall, the whole thing. But I went down to the boathouse. I had to make weight, right? I had to make, uh, at the time, I think they let you be 138 pounds, even though the international standard is 128 which is a lot less. But anyway, so I, I had to do like a little jog to make that. And I'd lost a few pounds to make that, which is absurd now that I think about my body right now. So I was right on the edge of where probably this was not something I should have been doing physically. And I took this 6K ERG test and I had, I mean, I had probably the best ERG test I've ever had in my entire life. And I attribute that to the fact that there was no pressure I was the youngest person there by three years. There wasn't a single freshman, sophomore, or junior in college at that testing site that day. I sat in the back so I could see all the monitors in front of me and they couldn't see me. <laughs> you know, I was racing lightweights for the first time in my life, which I actually loved because I was like, oh, well, now it's just about who's tougher and who prepared better. It has nothing to do with the fact that that person weighs 40 pounds more than me. It was amazing. And I pulled a really great time, like well enough to be voted the next day with the coaches. And and then so I had this great time. I was like 14th or something. By the way, we only had two lightweight women in the Olympics. So I don't know why someone wasn't like, you do realize you have to be like top five to do well. But anyway, um, so I went back to campus. And interestingly, now that I know all the tools I teach, I told myself that was a great time. But I didn't tell myself that was a great time. Now, what do you do? I told myself, oh, my God, that was a great time. You're never going to be able to do that again. And that I told myself that quickly. My coach was shocked at the time that I pulled, but it was a 24 minutes and one second, which any rowing coach will look at those times and be like, oh, you were so close to breaking 24 minutes. <laughs> I've heard that from Taylor, by the way. Why didn't I look up and pull just three more strokes a little bit harder? Yeah, exactly. And that's what she said. And I remember having this big bubble that she just burst right there. And, <laughs> and maybe I needed to have some bubbles burst. I'm sure I did. I think I, you know, everyone's sort of an immature athlete in that time in their career. But I had my worst ERG test the very next one I took three weeks later. And so when I, I tell my athletes those stories, and I can go into that in more detail if you're curious about like exactly what happened there, but I tell them the stories to humanize the coaches standing in front of them and let them see me of like, yeah, I did really well. And let me tell you, this was not like, this was not like a exactly linear progression here. Like there are huge ups and downs along the way, many more downs than ups. You just hope that the, you know, line of least regression is, is, has a positive slope. Um, and that's, that's all you can do and expect to have many data points above the line and many below the line. 
with my height, I think I can stand in front of them and say, you can do this. Like they can see me and it's going to be really hard (laughs) just to be clear, right? And it's not going to be fun all the time. I read some of Anton Dorrance's, who's a women's soccer coach at UNC Chapel Hill. He's got some really great books, but he, and I'm going to paraphrase it. So hopefully I don't butcher it, but he said something to the effect of, he tells his athletes, there's a difference between what is fun and what makes you happy. And I remind all of my athletes going to college, you're going to have, may have to tell yourself this every day because I was never walking down to the boathouse with like rainbows and puppy dogs thinking like, this is going to be fun. It is not fun. Right? <laughs> it is not like write home to mommy and daddy about how fun this is. But the question is, when you leave, are you fulfilled? Which is the word that I use to associate with happy. Like, have you filled your tank of like, I saw the challenge, I stepped into it, and I did the best that I could. Forget about what the grade was, because that's how you're going to find inner peace about what, how you're spending your time and the purpose that you're seeking. So as a smaller person in our sport, it teaches you real fast. You don't have the advantage of height, so how are you going to compete, right? You have to be someone that sits down and is just nasty when they sit down or that everyone wants in their boat. I had never used the expression when I was rowing in college as a kill switch, but Krista actually had introduced me. Yeah. Krista likes that one. Yeah. And it's totally true. And I totally have it. I'd never really thought about it that way, at least not in rowing. I did think about it in soccer because I was actually a pretty competitive high school soccer player and loved the contact piece of it. Right. I actually really missed that in, in rowing. Her wife is actually the one being like, Oh, are you kidding? Holly totally has a kill switch. And I was like, nope. You know, like I've always, I still, even to this day, when people will say things like that, I'll be like, what? I'm like the most innocent person in there. And they're like, no, you are not. <laughs> and so it's just interesting, right? Like you just don't, and maybe that's why I was able to go fast. Because I always assumed I wasn't fast enough. Or I was the weakest link in the boat. And I told a teammate of mine that was coaching my camp a couple of years ago, I rode with her for two years. And, you know, in the time of coaching Ready, Set, Rose, such a gift to be able to go back and think back on 15 years ago, like how we saw each other in that. And she's amazing, you know, six two, like Canadian top Canadian recruit. And I was like, Oh, I just assumed I was the slowest person in every boat I was in. Like the boat can only go as fast as its weakest link. And she was like, what? You were not the slowest person. And I was like, Oh, well, I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool to listen to you and your thought process and your history and how it's all gotten to where where you are today and doing what you do today and listening to your fears and your uncertainties when you were, whether it be high school or college and, and having pretty long conversations with Taylor about, you know, what she goes through. And it's fascinating. So it's wonderful to hear your, you know, you and, and I know, as I've said, and, and she would she would be fine hearing me say this, that, you know, she looks up to you and she's learned so much from you. So many things that you've talked about here, she embodies in her own approach. And she's probably not going down to the boathouse with a hop, skip and a, you know, with rainbows and butterflies in her head, but she's going there. And I think she walks away joyful. I think she walks away feeling fulfilled that she got it done. I'd love to switch. It's, I don't know that it's really a gear switch at all, but I have a bit of a project. It has to do with strong, independent women. And I was born into a family. I, you know, my mother is very strong, capable, and independent. And I come from a long line of, you know, grandmother, great grandmother, and 
and and I married a very strong woman and and daughters are very strong and capable and I come from a part of the world the Adirondack Park in upstate New York where for some reason there seems to be a very robust population of strong independent women of lots of different generations various socioeconomic backgrounds and various geographic uh you know home bases if you will and so it really kind of started there like hmm what's going on here and it is blossoming into something greater than that which is okay there are example after example after example after example of human beings who ha just happen to be female who are having a really really significant impact on the people that they come into contact with you're certainly in that grouping or fit that bill or whatever we want to call it but i have a an idea and i don't know what shape it's going to take but i'm going to try and figure out how to connect you know celebrate and connect women who are you know who are thriving and who are in support of self each other and um you know in the greater good of of you know the this human species i don't know i think i talked about this with with a woman i talked to yesterday i think it would be very interesting like i know you're doing your thing and then i talked to lynn hill whose episode will probably be out before yours and she's one of the greatest rock climbers of all time and she oh and she happens to be five foot one and a half inches tall height in theory lends to being a better rock climber right longer lovers she did something in, in Yosemite. She free climbed the nose of El Capitan 10 years before any other human accomplished it. She said, I'm not undersized, I'm just small, <laughs> right? Like, but incredibly motivated. And I've asked various people, I asked Lynn this, I said, you know, what does a you know, middle-aged white guy have, you know, get, what gives me the, the reason to be thinking that I could support, promote, provide platform, encourage, you know, whatever it might be to bring together more and more and more women who are, and celebrate just things that are happening. And, and the fact that there are young people being motivated and, you know, driven and given tools and, you know, an understanding of how to, how to get out there and make things happen for themselves and, and others. But anyway, I'm not sure if that's a, if you want to wander into that realm at all about whether i think there's value in that you mean sure yeah i definitely think there's value in that i think there's sort of a bunch of ideas swirling around in my head and i'm going to use a microcosm a, a very privileged white microcosm for you to explain one of the concepts which is when i look at um like growing either gathering fundraising what have you the men in general, tend to be way more engaged than the women. And I've asked myself, why is that? And when I've tried to just sort of, you know, interview like the, the women that I have access to easily, they are so overworked, Jeff, <laughs> that they don't carve out the time that the men do to do those things. And I'm like, well, why is that? Well, because they're now working just as many hours as the men, for most of them. And then their family is next, or their family and then the work, whatever, it, it depends. Or maybe they're at, on par, I'm not sure, it depends. 
But the point is like the men will, is much easier for the men, whether this is because they just make the decision to do that or the dynamics in the relationship, or it's like a cultural thing or what, but you know, even when our kids were little, like my husband would go on his boys ski trip and like, what? My women friends have not had a women's trip ever. So why is that? And I'm not trying to judge the men. I'm just saying I wish the women got to do it too, right? I think the men totally need to do that, but the women need to as well. And what I think it comes down to is they just, <laughs> it's like they have a pie chart and they're trying to figure out how their time. This is why my, we talked about in the beginning, like my stress about my pie chart was so strong for me because I felt such desire to have my kids be a bigger piece of the pie, but the pie was divvied out already. Like there were no more pieces for right. the pie before the virus. And so for men, it's easier for whatever reason, and I don't know the answer, for them to have a wedge that is these other things, connection among peers physically, like they would go and see each other, if not just local folks, like go have a guy's night, right? And I don't know why that is, but there's a missed opportunity both for women to connect there and a missed growth opportunity, I think, because, you know, as, as you learned from Krista, one of the three ways to get more brave is witnessing brave action. So in effect, by the women not being able to learn the stories of the other women or even see or talk or learn from them, they're missing to get more brave, right? And I'm not trying to say my husband gets more brave when he goes on a guy's ski trip. And he doesn't do that alone. I'm just giving that as an example. There is lost opportunity because women, myself included, haven't figured out how to make a new wedge. Where do you take the pie away from to make a new wedge like that? I actually think maybe for some, the privileged some in this virus that can work from home, right, and are actually finding that maybe they could do some things they couldn't do before, or part of their wedge is just removed because they can't do it anymore because of the virus, maybe they're finding that there are some opportunities to work something else in there, but it's hard because they're so overextended already. What does that look like for them? And, you know, Krista and I have talked about this a lot of like, how do you create connection and community for adult professional or just adult women who maybe are just, you know, working in the home with their families, how do you create that for them? Because so many are missing that. When we've done some work with adult women, when I've asked them why they did this, themes come up, right? They'll talk about feeling stuck, stuck. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? They're stuck, I think, because they, they've got these very clear time of their pie, 24 hours a day. And those wedges don't have any opportunity for them to sit and observe and think and reflect and be creative, right? Um, be observant. They have so many things on their to-do list. And that is really what I consider like self-care, right? Self-care isn't like doing your fingernails. Like this is the internal workings of giving yourself the opportunity for new self-awareness and self-improvement. And so there's lost opportunity there. And then I think women just haven't had the time. And I don't know how to solve that. I've been a part of a, of a book club. It's sort of like a book club. Um, it's actually a, a white woman's anti-race book club that a close friend has been amazing at organizing and running. And that has been really awesome to get those really smart women on Zoom um, to talk about really hard topics. What do we need to be doing? Just not like saying, 
you know, I want to, I want to help make change here, but how do you actually make change if only you're starting with yourself? Those opportunities for adult women, I think, to connect and learn from each other and then talk about hard topics is there. It's just the time piece is really hard. You know, it's really, really hard. Mm. I think there's something about having been around women all my life and, you know, having two daughters and, and, you know, there's something about mothers and and children, right? And there's something of there's something about being a mother, and obviously not all women are, but something biological that is well. There's some very obvious biological differences, but yeah, you know, we men don't carry the children. We we don't birth the children. There's a much different connection. Not that dads don't love their children. You know, we do. But we only bring so much to the party, certainly in the first year of life, I think is one of the easiest places to see it where you're like, well, you know, I don't have the soft spots and I can hold the baby and I can give you a break. But at some point that baby wants nothing more than mom, right? Like, like dads are, dads are solid support mechanisms, but, but we just don't have the, you know, we don't feel the same to them. And it's funny because then there comes a time and it's not all about kids, but there comes a time where you go, oh, yeah, no, I, now I actually can be part of the the game here. I can be part of this experience with these kids because they can hang out with me, right? Like I can I can do things with them. But early on, like <laughs> my shoulder doesn't feel the same as mom's shoulder, right? When they put their head down, right? It's just not the same. So I think there's something there. And then I also think that there's this, you touched on it earlier when you were talking about your road trip, there's this well, how is it that I think I'm going to be able to carve that time out, right? Like, why do I deserve that time? And, and I don't know if that's actually, you know, spoken properly, but, or your friends go, well, are you really going to go do that? Well, yeah, that's, that's really what I'm going to go do. Are you really going to carve out? And because this is really swirling in my, not only in my mind, but like the laundry list of people that I want to talk to, women from all sorts of different, you know, all over the map is pretty extensive. So it's all swirling around in my head to not necessarily solve it, but maybe be a part of like, oh, well, let's try this and let's let's have dialogue. And I just happen to have a platform. So maybe there's a way that I can help. I don't know that. And I don't say that with any kind of, you know, arrogance or, or you know, I like I'm not super confident about it, but I do think that there's something and there's something that can be done. Yeah. So my sort of wheels are turning real time. So I'm going to try my best to be articulate about this. But the first thing that occurred to me is I think you're right about the mom piece. And I don't want to take anything away from adult women who don't have children who are doing amazing things because there clearly are. But there's something else going on for an adult woman who is also a mom. Doesn't even have to be a birth mom, could be adopted mom or, you know, whatever. Um, there's an internal conflict and the management of like culture and societal pressures. While also, I had a great friend tell me right after I had my first kid, as you're like trying to figure out what the heck is happening, and you're totally correct that, that, you know, science knows there are literally biological changes in the mom's body, like her brain literally changes after she's had a baby. There's a period of mourning for a new mom, which is her old self. I wish someone had told me this before this baby was born, my first one. Because I, I think it would have taken a lot of pressure off me of like the guilt of what is happening. And I'm not a doctor about, you know, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but that really resonated with me because particularly for a, 
pretty athletic person, right? I hated being pregnant. I felt huge. I couldn't do the normal exercise I used to do. I retained so much water. I like just everything, all of the things <laughs> happened to me. I was super morning, had this nauseous all the time, morning sickness. I was like, who in the world is like, I feel beautiful. Like, no, I felt totally disgusting. <laughs> and I just wanted to have the baby, right? And so, but what happens once you have the baby is the old you is gone forever, right? The old you, old you in its entirety. I can't remember if it was an article or maybe she just paraphrased it, but she basically said, you need to recognize and mourn the fact that the old you is gone. And this is not something to like be depressed about for a long time, but recognize that like, this is okay that you're going to do this and you're going to figure out who the new you is. And there's so many more amazing things about the new you than you're recognizing right now, but it's okay to be mourning the old you. And that was really helpful for me, right? And I almost feel like as I'm aging now, I'm sort of looking back on that and being like, uh, you are mourning the old body you had. Right. Aren't we all? And <laughs> we all do. <laughs> exactly. And so that was the first thing of like women who've had children. It's, yes, it's a ton of work and all, you know, there's no sleep and all the things. It's so hard and so amazing and so hard. <laughs> but the piece that I thought was so interesting is the self-compassion and awareness of the morning and the curiosity and sort of self-reflection needed to rebuild the new one of you. And so as you look at women who are doing great things in so many different areas who also have children, I particularly am very interested in how did that happen? Literally, how did it happen? And what happened internally? Like there are stages that they go through and their children are aging through those stages too. So I'm sure there's correlation there, right? As, as you said in the beginning, as your kids get older, how did that look like for them? And a friend of mine, his wife is a breast cancer doctor, actually. I've never actually met her in person. I've only seen her on Facebook and stuff. But I remember she posted something or she maybe she wrote an article. She's a doctor, you know, super busy. She said that the expression of, you know, you can do it all or telling women you can do it all is totally false. I focus 100% on my work when I'm at work. And when I'm at home, I try to focus 100% at home. You have to allow yourself to do that because if you don't, there's constant and consistent pull and almost shame that you're not doing the other one when you're at one of them. And that's taken me a long time to get to, and you definitely have to have a support structure to be able to do that, right? And, and some women just don't have that. Like They're not going to be able to do that. And so there's that. But for those that do, I just think it's so interesting and inspiring and, and helpful to hear from other women about like how they have done that. Not do it all, but like compartmentalize almost. Well, and be present, right? It makes me think of, of okay, like you said, if you're working, you're focused on your work. If you're with your children, you're present, right? Like you went on a long road trip. I imagine for the, much of that eight weeks, you were present. Like you were in that experience. And, you know, on a day to day, we can look at it. And I, you know, I follow Krista and on Instagram and you know, kids and, and life and New York and business and like fitting it in the slices of the pie is an interesting piece of it. And then, and then like, if you're going to carve out a slice that is me, <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to care for me, or I'm going to do, like you said, where 
you know, I'm going to connect with other adult women and I'm going to make time for that to nurture and learn from others. And I'm going to be present in that during that slice of pie, that slice of time. And I'm not going to feel guilty about not being with my kids or not doing whatever, whatever it might be about not working on my business or taking physical, you know, exercise or, or, you know, anything. I think being present and we're, I heard something the other day that I thought was really interesting that something like 45 to 50% of the time, our minds are, are thinking, you know, almost daydreaming about some other time, some other place, or, you know, not right now. Like we're not present for somewhere close to 50% of the time in our lives, average. And that's one of the practices, you know, it's a yogic practice. It's a meditation practice. It's a, it's a practice to be like this, this moment is the gift, this conversation that you and I are having, this is the current, this is the gift, right? To be experienced presently. And then we'll go on to other things. When we finish our conversation, we'll, we'll go on to other things. But I think one of the big challenges is giving one's self the opportunity to be present in the moment and not feel tugged. And so I do think it would be fascinating to connect. And I've thought about this from the ATBS, the podcast perspective, where people have asked me like, hey, could I, how could I get in touch with that person who was on your episode? And wouldn't it be cool if we could jump in and have, have, you know, conversation, carve out time where, you know, somebody could ask Holly Austin a question and somebody could ask Lynn Hill a question. And then there can be this cross pollination. And I do think that it's possible. There seems to be, I'm actually in exploration of some, some possibility because wouldn't it be cool to carve out, you know, even if it's, I don't know, Let's say it's let's say it's 30 minutes in and you know and it happens twice a week or something like that where if you wanted to jump in on a conversation with a bunch of really strong capable women and again I'm just pondering you can jump in and, and join that conversation and ask questions and learn and share and support that is interesting to me I think it's possible yeah I think that'd be awesome yeah, cool. I'm glad to hear that. I, you know, again, I, I have this like, what in the world do you think, Jeff? You know, like, why do you think that this is something that you could do? I don't ask myself that question too much. I think it's probably, I've asked the question of enough women at this point, like, okay, well, let's, I don't know, I'll do my, I'll, I'll see if I can do my part. And I, I also saw, where did I see this? Um, oh, there's a woman that I am familiar with who has a company called the Female Quotient. It's business and equality, and her name is Shelly Zalas. And I saw a quote on her website, I think, which is that feminism requires men to be in the game as well. We all need to be in the game. If men can go on the men's ski trips, then, you know, men need to be in the game of, I'll do whatever I can so that you've got time to go do what you need to do. And that's a very basic example, but, you know, I think we all need to be in the game. And then it goes all the way back to, you know, the fact that we had this inauguration yesterday and... We are the ones that need to do the work. We individuals, it's not up to anybody. It's not up to just one person or one politician or one administration. You know, it's up to all of us to, to be in the game. 
Yeah, that's right. Holly, I am so thrilled to have been able to spend time that you're willing to take a slice out of your pie and spend almost an hour and a half on the phone with me, which is, I know it's a bunch of time, and, and but I'm extremely grateful and I'm so glad that you are willing and, and have spent the time here. And so thanks for joining me on ATBS, the podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. Happy to be here. It was so fun. Well, again, a couple of things. One, uh, Holly Austin, you're going to find everything you need to know about what you offer, what you do at readysetrow.com. I know that. It's a great website and you're offering things all the time and development camps. Are, do you think there's going to be, you're going to be able to have a development camp this summer? I hope. So we're, yeah, we're putting the wheels in motion to try to offer the camp. Obviously, there's a ton of metrics that we want to meet um, to make sure it's a safe and positive experience for everyone involved. Um, but, you know, if if for some reason summer camps can't happen, then we built the virtual program last summer that we can run again. You know, we had over 80 kids in it last summer, so that was amazing. And so probably going to be able to offer the virtual training camp in addition to an in-person camp if we run it, because I have some coaches who c wouldn't be able to come to the in-person camp anyway. So, you know, another silver lining for us, it pushed us to create you know, an online version of some of our programs. And we were able to reach more kids that way than I've ever been able to in a summer. And so now we have all that in place to be able to replicate it, to offer it to, you know, athletes and students who may not be able to come to the in-person camp or boys. So that's been really, you know, that's really great. I know Taylor participated last year in, I think, 12 weeks of virtual camp. And what a silver lining, what a gift. I was a little nervous, but again, if you let fear run the show, then you're going to miss out on that opportunity. And so we had a goal of getting 40 or maybe 50 kids in there, and we wound up having like 84. So, you know, it was great. Well, keep up the good work. And I'm a huge fan and a big sporter and, and love what you do and love the team that you put together. And I was grateful to be introduced to Krista and be able to have her on the show. And my goodness, what a what an incredibly dynamic human being she is. And uh, I will stay in touch with you on this, on this other, these ideas that have swirled for sure. I'll put information in the show notes on where to find Holly and, and Ready, Set, Row. And I wish you all the best. And, and uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for sharing everything that you have. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode with Holly Austin. This podcast is produced by me and Wyatt Schmidt, original artwork and music by Wyatt Schmidt. ATBS is greatly influenced by you, the listener. Your comments and feedback on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube help us to improve the podcast and guide us into the future where we will continue sharing the highest vibrations possible. So support us any way you'd like, share it, send it, email it, I appreciate it all. Till next time, peace.